Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the Trial Lawyer Podcast. The title of the podcast, as you may have noticed today, is Boom Goes the Dynamite. Dealing with policy limits demands and their impact on uh, cases that we handle. Um, this, was a ty- this was a topic suggested by my good friend uh, and collaborator who's here with us, uh, Scott Powers, um, who is a attorney at the firm of Snow Christensen Martineau. Also here with me today is my partner, Dan Garner, here at White & Garner. Um, and of course, my name is Gabriel White, um, and I am here at White & Garner as well. Um, so policy limits demands, an important part of um, any, especially tort, well, any tort attorney's practice because um, they put the insurer they have a special effect on the other side, uh, on the insurer. Scott, you want to explain why this was, was is a concern? Well, yeah. Anytime you end up getting a policy limits demand and you're representing a an insured. But before we get into that, just a brief word from our sponsors. Unfortunately, most lawyers are never available when you need them. Many of them don't put your interests first. The lawyers at White & Garner do things differently. We take each case very seriously. We will always put your interests first. We represent people who have been injured in accidents. We also handle commercial litigation cases. Other law firms assign your case to a paralegal or secretary and put that person in charge of managing your case. Getting your actual attorney on the phone can be a nightmare, no matter how important your case. At our firm, every case is important, and every client gets our full attention. We only take cases that we are comfortable taking all the way to a jury trial. Every move we make helps us better prepare your case for trial. To get the best results at trial, you need a lawyer that is paying attention and that is not afraid of a jury. You need the lawyers at White & Garner. Each client of White & Garner has access to their attorney at any time, any day of the week. You can talk directly to your attorney about your case at any time, day or night. If we do miss your call, we will get back to you within 24 hours. If you hire a lawyer from White & Garner, we will be there for you when you need us. That is our promise, and we keep our promises. Policy limits demands are scary to insurers and insureds alike because the insured is worried that the policy limits will not be enough to cover them and they'll have to come out of pocket on a loss. And the insurance company is worried because if they don't properly analyze the demand and it goes above, the insurer or the insured, the client, may come back after them for bad faith or at the very least ask the insurance company to cover the excess judgment on the basis that they should have known that the liability and exposure would have exceeded the policy limits and arguably should have accepted the demand when it came in. But, you know, and the competing issue is, well, but do, do the insurance company doesn't want to overpay. So if it's an $800,000 claim, in order to buy peace and not worry about the issues I just referenced, do they pay an extra couple hundred thousand dollars and that's the big question that's what attorneys like you love to do well and that's one of the nuances that is it can be kind of difficult to explain to clients when they come in um, because you know clients always think that a 
you know, higher limit on the policy of the person who, you know, ran them over or did whatever um, is going to be better for their case. But that's not always true. Um, oftentimes, an insurer who has a policy limit that it knows is going to be exhausted, whether that's at, you know, 100000 300000 500000 million dollars, depending on the nature of the claim, is much more likely to try and resolve the claim quicker than an insurer who, um, who you know, is facing a $100,000 claim and they've got a million dollar insurance policy because they think, well, we've got, we don't have to worry about bad faith. And, you know, there's also the issue that this goes to kind of the fundamental way that insurance companies run in that they make their money by accurately predicting how many, how much they're going to have to pay out in losses every year, and then setting reserves at that at that amount, setting aside money in accounts, and then making investments with those money, with that money. And so, the longer the case goes on, um, assuming those investments are put in in conservative investments, that amount grows. Assuming that they're going to get something more than... See, I don't buy that because they'd have to get no, more than, I mean, than it, the prejudgment interest rate. But, but for example, um, when we tried a case that was 16 years old, one of the things our economist said off the cuff to us the night before was, you know, uh, given the age of this case and what they probably reserved it at at the beginning, um, I'm almost certain they've made... You know, we we're going to ask $8 million. He's like, I can almost guarantee they made more money on interest... On, on their investments uh, of that reserve money over those 16 years than they, than, than, uh, yeah, what is the prejudging for? What is the prejudging interest rate right now? It's like 10%, right? No, it, it, it's, it's Utah. Well, in Utah, it um, has been made infinitely more complex by a new statute that requires you to compute. Use the prime rate and do a bunch of well math. and recompute it every year based on changes in the interest rate, so you don't get to just stick with just a one simple number. For it was a simple number for years. It was a simple number. When did that change? Eh? Well, it changed from ten percent to seven point five percent, and then it changed to, I believe there was a, ch- I, I and I could be wrong on this, but there was a change to uh, you had to use the prime rate and calculate it, and then that was the prejudgment interest rate for the whole case. And then there was a change that said, well, for, you know, for damages incurred in each year, you've got to calculate, you know, on January 1 what that new rate is, and that's the interest rate for those damages that year. So you do it year by year. That gets complicated. It, it does, and, and the purpose of it is, I think, as insurance companies were lobbying that, you know, real interest rates were so low for so long, they said, why should these plaintiffs be, you know, their, their argument is effectively... You injured me on the date of the accident, and you're holding on to my money until you pay it out, and which I, I think is a good argument because uh, anything any other rule just encourages insurance companies to drag things out longer. Um, well, they uh, you know they said, look, if what they would get had they had this invested in you know a mutual fund is one or two percent. You know, why should we be paying out 7.5% per year? Well, to, to disincentivize them from doing just that. Well, yeah, that's my argument. but um, Yeah, but that's the only common sense argument that really flies. Well, I appreciate you. Because otherwise you've got an incentive. Uh, unfortunately, the UDLA just called. They're going to be revoking your 
membership. Hey, I'm a Horizon Award winner. I am the best up-and-coming defense attorney. Thank you very much. Yeah. Doesn't mean I can't so recognize so when the policy is not maybe the... You're, maybe you're protected for a short period of yes, time after that. All right, good. Yeah, yeah. You, you can tell truth. Yeah, the UDLA thugs are going to come get me. They're going to wrestle you to the ground. You're really hammering them today. Yeah. Thugs, all sorts thugs. of thugs. Oh, <laughs> they probably don't listen guys. to this podcast anymore. No, I'm sure they do. Um, they're watching So, you. if they're wise... They're, they're, they're paying attention. Oh, they're wise. So from the plaintiff's standpoint... The maximum know, is 10 on the interest rate. Can't go above that. Yeah, so so it's up to a max of, of 10%. So, so what does the statute read? Do you, pull it, do you look at the statute? Don't read the statute over the eye of the air because it's just it's re, it's really complicated now. Yeah, it's like... really boring. In the first year, I just oh, read shiz. it. Oh, shit. Okay, like first well, year it's this, second year it's this... You gotta look at this. If you want to look it up, it's uh, 78B hyphen five hyphen four ten. In the Utah code. In the Utah code. Yeah. Right. So, it, it it gets really complicated. But the you know the point of all this is so you look at you know the insurance company. They're trying to figure out all right, you know how do we make money when we're our whole business is supposedly to pay off these losses. Well, they figure out how many act. That's what they use actuaries for. They figure out how many losses. They're likely to have in a given population under a given set of laws and rules in a particular year, and then they set their premiums accordingly, so they'll be able to cover those losses, and that they'll be able to make, you know, make money, make a profit on it, and and policy limits demands um, put them at risk of kind of violating that principle because if they're paying out more than the limits they set, they're starting to get into territory where they may actually lose money. And I don't know that, you know, everybody would agree with me on this, but the way I understand it, even if they pay out policy limits on, on a lot of these claims, they're still going to wind up making money because they've, they've factored that possibility in when they made their, their, their calculation of what the premium they were going to charge was going to be. Uh, see, I don't think it works like that. I, I think that... Because you have to, they ask you because they want to set reserves for the particular case. Yes, but right? they, that's that's my point. They set a reserve, and that's what the actuaries are basing their, you know, yearly reports on. I don't think that any insurance company ever bases their yearly stuff on, you know, on, well, on what we, what is the maximum risk. If we had to pay at one hundred percent of every one of our policies at full policy limit, that's what we have to be able to cover. No, there's no me, way. Let me put it this way. If half of the policies paid out policy limits, it would bankrupt any insurer. Let me let me put it this half. way. Half. Let me put it this way. When was the last time you ever heard of a uh, even a regional insurance company going out of business because of their insurance business? Now we we in the two thousand eight financial crash, several insurance companies were in danger of going out of business. It's like saying, <laughs> when have you heard of a restaurant collateral. going out of business because of its restaurant business? I'm sorry, I don't well, understand what you're saying. Several, several of the large insurance companies are also engaged in things like, like credit swap defaults. You're making you're making an assumption, Gabe. I don't think you Did know. Did you as see the movie? I don't think you know as much of, uh, about the insurance. That Michael uh, Lewis book. What was the name of the book? Uh, uh, the Big Short. Did you see the Big Short? I did not see the big short. Okay, so they talked about how I they talked about yeah, one of the reasons why AIG, AIG almost right. almost went under, but it was because they a had lot of the insurance heavily. companies are are well, they look. have a financial services sector, but but you're you're what I'm saying is you're, you're applying the it's a logical fallacy. No, you're you're, you're, you're getting off topic. Okay. The point the point I'm trying to make is is I've seen insurance companies almost go broke because of that side of the business. 
I've never seen an insurance company go broke because they paid I out too much on I personally have claims. spoken to several uh, people about insurance companies being in runoff as a result of having had too many large payouts. And it's it's turned them upside down, and they had to they Is had to personal injury claims or, or, or disaster claims overall, whether they be personal injury disaster. Typically, most insurance companies will write multiple lines, and as a result of many claims being asserted, a couple of them I've heard them having to merge or sell their assets off and their policies off and their customers off to another, you know, another bigger insurance company will swoop in get those because that little guy went out of business because of a bunch of losses. Yes, it does happen as a result of losses. Yeah, no, I, I can see how it could happen in result like a case where there's a hurricane. See, there's huge damages. You're crazy. Massive. But if you're if your actuaries are actual if if you're setting your you're setting your premiums in advance with the and and if you're doing a good job in setting in guessing what you're gonna have to pay out for this whole risk pool and you you get to set those in advance, unless you're wrong in your guess of how much you're gonna pay out you should never lose money. Now, I understand that sometimes they're wrong, but that has more to do with decisions they make in cases where they things like where they get policy. No, no, no. everything's demand. based on expected risk, but actual risk can vary from expected risk. And Obviously. when the actual risk varies from the expected risk is when they get themselves into trouble. If you have a risk pool, let's say, where they expect to pay out on 20% of their claims, well, then they expect to pay out, let's say, all of their claims are in an aggregate, of potentially a million dollars. Well, if they expect to pay out on 20% of that, then common sense would say you have to have $200,000 cash on hand to cover your expected losses. And they end up paying $40,000. They've got half as much as they need to cover their claims. And that, guess what that's called? That's called we can't do business no more. And that's all I'm saying. And you're making an assumption that when, when they write the policy, then they're not doing it but they're doing it with the idea that, well, we have to be able to cover a million-dollar loss. I disagree. I think that what they do is they say, there's a 20% chance based on all these different factors that this will result in a loss, meaning that we have to carry two hundred grand on this million-dollar policy just in case. No, I think we, uh, and I, I, I think I agree with that. I'm, okay. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm saying that, that the only way for them to go out of business is to make that calculation incorrectly. Well, so my point is, we get back to the policy limits demand, which right. we're talking about today. If you have a policy limits demand... I think coming from the perspective that I assumed you were taking, but apparently you weren't, um, I, I don't think it makes sense to think that, well, they're gonna, they, they should have had that money in the kitty to cover this loss. Not at all. They should have had 200000 And so when you've got a policy limits demand, I, I, don't, I don't think it goes to – I guess maybe we should sum it up by saying it I'm not so sure saying, that it goes to underwriting here. It's so more it's, of a – It depends on – it, it, what I'm saying is it depends on... I don't on know if they do it on an individual... <coughs> I mean, I don't think they could, right? Well, they're, so they're, the claims I think they go, go we're insuring X, y, X amount of people for this. <coughs> we think there's going... So they're, say they're, you know, if we have policy limits of $10 million for 10 people. That's our insurance base. We think that... 20% of those or two of those people are going to have claims. And, and I think that's how they do it. I don't know necessarily. Yeah. And I, well, well, and each claim do. does go through underwriting as well. Well, here's what I think Gabe is trying to get to. Um, and maybe you guys can both correct me if I'm wrong. And I, I am, the more I think about it, I agree with what you're saying, assuming that's what I'm about to say, is if you have a situation where, like yours, Dan, You've got these 10 people and you expect to pay out. Let's keep using the 20% of the time. That's totally crazy and we're just pulling it out of the air. Depends uh, on the lawyers. But let's say $10 million. 80% of the time. $10 million of total policies written. You've got a $2 million of expected losses. 
And let's say, yeah, that's all well and good, but now three of them have losses. Two of them paid out, I don't know, 600000 each, and then one of them comes in at a policy limit of a million dollars. Well, all of a sudden, you're, you're way over what you have. Or let's just say one of them, let's say two of them pay out five hundred, and then another one is asked for policy limits. Well, you're at your $2 million expected loss. And with what Gabe is saying is correct is if they consider that wrong and they have to pay out that excess at some point in the future, that's what gets them into the hot water. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I was always told when I was learning okay. about these bad faith litigation, um, you know, is that, uh, is that there are two points when an adjuster really is at risk of being fired. Is when uh, if, A, they're not keeping track of their cases, which is why they'll harass you about reports and things and they get caught too many times not keeping track of keeping records on their cases, or B, when the insurance company has to pay out more than they expected on a claim, when there's an excess verdict. Well, my point, and, and so the reason I disagree with that is I think that that applies even in scenarios just totally separate from policy limits. I don't know how much policy limits demands really affect that because my understanding is, at least with some of my insurance clients, that um, when they get any kind of big loss, even if it's, let's say, a... a million-dollar policy, and all they're being asked to do is pay 600 If they've estimated that it's going to be 400 and they've set a reserve at 400 and actual value of it is 600 and they've screwed that up, policy limits policy limits. It doesn't matter. That's that's the problem. They set yeah, their no, limits, I, their reserve to reserves, and that's you know. what's caused the issue. I, 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 I can see that. I mean, I, I just think I, I just think the pressure, the, the extra pressure... So why wouldn't they all just set the reserves at whatever the limit because they wouldn't because they don't have enough money they wouldn't well, they don't have enough money, money. what happens with the reserves this is again my well, I'm saying from a, not from a uh, macro insurance person uh, company level I'm saying as an adjuster to cover my butt well because then I'm gonna be like, but I'm but if doing the high side every single time with the reserves. so some of my adjusters they have to do a bunch of additional reporting anytime it goes over a certain monetary level okay. and anytime you start talking about policy limits if they want to set a policy limits reserve I'm sure that they have to do not only more reports but then they have to go and talk to they've got large loss committees, committees and things like that where they have to justify why they said what they said and oftentimes they'll have a big conference call with six different executives and they'll bring the I've been on these calls well they bring in the the defense attorney. And you have to, you know, kind of go over all your analyses and why X, Y, and Z is the case and why aren't you doing A, B, and C. And I mean, it, it gets really hairy. And so there is an incentive for an insurance adjuster to try to, to the best of their ability, really narrow it down to the actual amount. Because if, if they just simply say policy, I'm, like, oh, I'm not going to get in trouble. Well, they are going to get in trouble because they're going to be called to, to answer a bunch of questions that they, if they don't need to, they don't want to. Yeah, and and... And I think the policy limits demand puts it kind of, is kind of these, the, the example of that puts it in the starkest relief because it's, it, it puts them at the risk not only of having to pay out more than they planned, but also of having a separate bad faith suit where, you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, so bad faith insurance company in a third party insurance situation where insurance car company is representing you because you accidentally injured somebody else. They have a duty to put their interests behind yours and and to do you know a whole bunch of duties to do a reasonable investigation to you know reasonably evaluate the claim to you know make reasonable settlement decisions from your perspective and if they don't then they can be liable to their insured and the way this typically happens is, you know, there'll be a policy limits demand, it'll lapse, 
and then the case will go to trial sometime later, and the the jury will award you know some multiple of the policy limits, and then you know the insured of course goes to the insurance company and either says hey pay this or I'm going to you know assign this over, and we usually try and get a you know we'll send letters which drive our opposing counsel crazy where we'll say look we're making a policy limits demand please provide a copy of this letter to your insured they don't like that they're like i i'll communicate with my client however i want thank you very much um i'll tell you what i, I, several, I typically I, just forward that thing i don't even want to mess I'm no like, i know here, here I, it is <laughs> talk I've, to your people let's have a conference call i think we had a conversation once at a lunch with you me and patrick where I was telling, I mentioned this, and you guys were like, "Oh, we hate, I hate that. That makes me so mad." And I'm like, "But do you forward it on?" Oh yeah, every freaking time, every single time, <laughs> you know. And because well, you want to cover, you want to cover yourself. You don't want to be told what no to downside. do. But at the same same time, the 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 upside of doing it is you don't worry about it. The downside of doing it is if you didn't communicate some aspect of it, then you're a defendant in the bad faith action. You're you know saddle up, witness. You get or to the bad one of the party. things that, one of the things that'll happen if Welcome if case that will not end if the defense counsel doesn't doesn't uh doesn't fulfill those so we'll ask them to provide it we'll ask them to inform them they're entitled at their own expense to hire separate counsel to negotiate with us um we'll we'll ask them to you know go over the risks of a of a you know what will happen in the event of a bad faith or an excess verdict and all of these things and you know What'll happen if they don't, or if they, or if, if you know, increasingly, insurance companies are looking, and one of the things they're analyzing, and I know this because an, an attorney who's a mentor of mine is hired to be a uh, an expert witness for by an, by an insurance company, in two or three of these type of cases, what they're doing is they're looking around when they have these big excess verdicts that they've got to pay, for other sources of people, somebody else who can pay them. And one of the prime people they look at is defense counsel. And they'll say, okay, we want you to go through, you know, Mr. Expert Attorney, bad faith attorney, we want you to go through their file and tell us, did this attorney accurately represent the risk we were facing in going to trial? Did this attorney accurately communicate with the insured and with us about you know, offers that were being made, decisions. Yeah, that's gonna and be then, a, that's going to be a hard malpractice hey, claim and, to and, win. And, and no, and they've and they've sued several. I've seen it several times where they've gone ahead and sued the attorney because the attorney didn't forward the info on. Or the the big one that I've seen several filed on is overly rosy reports, reports that say, "Oh, we are going to totally win. This plaintiff's claim is BS." Yeah. And doesn't contain that. On the other hand, if the jury believes the plaintiff, here is what's going to happen. Just these overly rosy reports. And I think part of that comes stems from... And of course, you know, the C says that I automatically think through right? the well, last couple of things that two, I've had to deal with. Like, yeah, okay. yeah there's, there's two ways. It's On the one hand, it could be just true believer syndrome, where they've just done these defense cases so long that they can't see the other side's points at all. Every plaintiff is a... Yeah. Every is, plaintiff is, was, a, well, was no. One of the but, benefits but, we had at CNJ was because we did both sides. Oh, but, yeah, well, it's all about that. But, um, but uh, you know, I, I, take what, I take what comes. Um, so, uh, but, but uh, the, uh, you know, 
PG thirteen. The other okay, thing is this is, podcast is rated I, I don't know PG thirteen. Are, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Not appropriate for um, children. So uh, the other <laughs> the other possibility is that they simply um, you know and I've seen this. There are two or three firms in town that I know they do this. Okay, they give overly rosy reports of the case to their adjusters all the way through the case because. Their billing rates are so low that if they don't, if they aren't working on cases for long enough, they're not making up those lower margins with higher hours. You're talking about churning, and then the churn, and then suddenly the reports start to, as they get closer to setting a trial date, the reports start to incorporate gloom a little more, a little more gloom and doom, until finally they say, you know, before trial you should settle this case, you know, and if they miss that. Or if that's not done soon enough that the case can be settled, and if that gloom and doom enters the, if and I'm not even going to call it gloom and doom, if if gloom potential and doom after we've potential taken the top re, off, if potential realities come up yeah. only after a policy limits demand's been evaluated and rejected, then I think you have an excellent malpractice case against that attorney because you can look at the files and say, wait a minute, here you said that we were going to totally win and. You know, it was like Conan the Barbarian. We will, you know, what is it, uh, burn? I'm not familiar with Conan. What is best in life? Uh, to crush your enemies. To see it's your good, enemies flee before to, you. To crush your enemies, to, to see them the driven before you, enemies. and to hear the lamentations of their women. And it's kind of that sort of tone. Is that and then, Arnold? Yeah. What is best in life? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very early Arnold. And then afterwards, you hear, you know, well, you know, there is the risk that, there could be a judgment of up to, and it's excess. You know, the insurance company is going to say, "All right, what changed your opinion in here?" And unless the attorney has a really good answer, um, there's going to be a payout. So I, I, you know, I think. So when you get a policy demand, yeah, powers. When you get a policy limits demand, what is immediately you're like, okay, you're forwarding it on. Yeah, I forward it on. I typically do a, a immediate. Powers is an excellent attorney, so I assume he's forwarding on all yeah. demands. Well, I, I absolutely forward on demands. I mean, that's a rule of professionalism. Sure. Not even professionalism civility. It's it's a rule of professional conduct. Right. You don't get to sit on a demand or a, right. an exactly. offer or a demand. I mean, once there's there's an offer out there, it's got to go. And you can, you can, you know, you can flavor it. You can say, this is crazy. Like, if I get an offer from Gabe and they've got, you know, 2,000 meds and the guy's just fine and he says, I want a million bucks, I'm going to say... Here is the offer for a million. Keep in mind, this, is guy's, crazy. this guy is crazy, and he, you don't yeah. know what he will do. And I said, and I forward a picture of Gabe on. He may just go try this understand. case over $2,000. So. No, but I forward I typically, I will do a, I'll do an evaluation uh, right then, just off the cuff an evaluation, and then I'll, and then I'll say, I'm going to work on a more substantive evaluation um, that, that builds into you know, all the discovery that we've done to date and what my thoughts are on all of the issues that are pertinent and, and where we stand and kind of get the range of potential outcomes. And then after that happens, I, and, and I also tell them, you know, listen, because of these implications, because I can't do coverage, you're going to have to look at it independently. And if you need more information than I'm providing or you want to consult about what your risks are individually, you need to talk to your own separate counsel. Do you have this conversation just with the insurance company? I do with, it on in writing to both the insured and the insurance company. Okay, and then cool. ultimately I later have a... The insured calls and goes. I ah. typically have at least one uh, phone conference or in-person in, in meeting. It's typically a phone conference because people are all over the nation. And, and we'll go over the issues as I'm seeing them answer any questions. 
um, and talk about what 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 the possibilities. Do you find are. it that insureds are just like? And this yeah, is this is again this assuming is my... assuming we're talking about a policy limits demand in one of my bigger like commercial sure. type cases where I've got a CGL insurer. Uh, you in used to do regular personal injury. Well, on a so let, let's let's so that's that's what I've done. In fact, I've done that relatively recently. Because because your clients right now are fairly sophisticated. They're they're right. commercial clients. They're been I've sued got a hundred times. So I've got I've got a bunch really, of yeah. I've got a, you know, a bunch of personal um, clients. Uh, I've got a bunch of you know, big company clients that are direct rep, meaning I'm not going through an insurance company, and then I have quite a few insurance companies. And then I have surety clients who are, they, they might be a, an arm, a financial services arm of an insurance company, but not necessarily kind of beholden to the same roles because a surety bond is a very different it's animal. It's different, yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, let's just bring it back to my insurance practice, right? And I get a policy in this demand and I'm talking to the insurance company. That's what I do. Now, that having been said, that is typically the the case when you're dealing with a one, two, whatever million dollar policy, right? You've got the you've got the exposure there to justify quite a bit of legal work, and introspection, and meetings and things of that nature. I think that it's a different calculus if, for example, you're dealing with a twenty five thousand dollar policy limits demand or a fifty thousand policy limits demand. You know, someone sends me an email and says, "Hey, uh, here's this. What do we do?" Well, I'm going to do much of the same stuff, but you know, a, a demand, a policy limit demand on a $25,000 case is not going to justify me doing $10,000 of heavy-duty legal investigation to then turn around and say, you kidding me? Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah. it, it's probably going to be, I mean, I'm going to give them the same advice. Yeah, talk to your separate people about excess, blah, blah, blah. But I think I'm more likely to say, listen, given the exposure, you should just, pay the, just pay the limits. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing is the other thing to keep that, that I think weighs on the mind of the experienced adjuster or the attorney who's been through a bad faith case before is kind of the nature of, of those cases. And, and I, I think it's help, it'd be helpful just quickly for those who may not be familiar. So the, the verdicts come in, it's multiples of the, of the, of the, you know, of the limits, and the insurance company decides they're not going to pay it, and so, and, you know, over their limits. So they pay out their limits and say, well, the rest is on you. Um, you Typically, the insured will be then approached uh, by, you know, counsel representing the, what's now the judgment creditor, was the plaintiff, and will say, look, if you give us your policy, with the, the limits of the policy that the, they're willing to pay and assign us over, give to us the right to sue your insurance company for not protecting you, then we will promise not to go after your personal assets and, um, you know, you can be out of this. And, you know, I don't care. Everybody always says, no, they'd never do that because they get, you know, so fired up while they're in the middle of the case. I've never seen anybody who winds up in that situation, no matter how passionate they were that they weren't at fault, who wasn't instantly willing to turn on their insurance company as soon as the high, a big verdict came in. And what happens then? Well, and a good point, I think, of what people in the room, and by that is people who do this every day, like even if the even if the excesses say, we'll say 100000 right? Like your analysis, our analysis, the insurance company's analysis on a hundred thousand excess is like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's a kind of a lot of money, but not a ton. To a regular person, 
that's yeah. like that's a breaker. Yeah, yeah. that's and, like and, which is why when life they, is over when when they hit that level. Time. Usually, I expect if it's at that if it's that close to policy limits, I expect the insurance company to just pay it to avoid this process from happening. Because then what happens is <clears throat> the plaintiff's counsel will go out and help the plaintiff hire a separate bad faith attorney. Why? Because plaintiff's counsel has just become a key witness, witness. in the case, and they'll hire a separate bad faith counsel to handle the case where these are attorneys that this will all they've done for 20 years. And then they will sue the insurance company on their behalf. And the adjuster, defense counsel, plaintiff's counsel will all be witnesses. They'll all be deposed. Their conduct, every little thing they ever did, will be examined under a microscope. Their file will be examined under a microscope, or at least the defense file will, usually not the plaintiff's file. And there's kind of a presumption that comes through, which, you know, whether it's fair or not in an individual case, um, you know, is, there's a lot of question, but there's a presumption that comes through that if the jury verdict was substantially over the amount of the policy limits, and it, that the insurer did not act reasonably in failing to settle for within the policy limits. Now, the standard is whether or not they're reasonably de- it's reasonably debatable, but... It's not reasonably debatable on policy limits, isn't it? A substantial likelihood of an excess. Uh, yeah, whether well, it's reasonably debate, I believe. Yeah, that's no. You're right. Yeah, whether well, there's a substantial likelihood of an excess, but it, the reality yeah, if it's is, it's fifty thousand re- reasonable. And you come back with a two million verdict. Yeah, the, it's like well, the, the, re- the reality <laughs> I mean, is, the, yeah. is the jury is the jury going to buy that? The jury know. looks at it and they're going to say, you know, absent some sort of secret information that the defendants didn't know until trial. Like, the jury is going to say, it's so easy for the jury to say, yeah, but there was a jury verdict, and these non-professionals decided that this was obvious enough that they entered this, they entered this verdict. Um, and so, you know, nobody wants to go through that situation, especially if you're on the receiving end of that. Um, so have you, had, have you had insureds that have been like, okay, well, they're asking for... Policy limits, you guys are saying that it's not worth that. You guys, will you give me a peace of mind letter? Has anyone been sophisticated enough to... I've been involved in several cases where that's happened. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they've asked for cumulus counsel. They've asked for peace of mind letters. Peace of mind letters have been rejected. I, peace of mind letters have issued before I got into the case, and we tried to backtrack, but we couldn't. Um, you know, and sometimes you'll get policy limits demands where they're issuing peace of mind letters and they're worrying about it or things will happen and then later on the facts actually backtrack, right? It all sure. becomes, becomes, becomes less likely. Now, peace of mind letters, just for those who aren't familiar with this area of law, peace of mind letters, just a letter from the insurance company telling the insured that got you. they've decided to continue to litigate the case, but, but the insured doesn't have to worry because the insurance company is agreeing in advance to pay any excess verdict. And so there will be no bad faith if that's the case. Now, let me ask you this, Powers. What is your position? Because um, we will always, when we think we have an excess situation, try and discover whether or not there has been a peace of mind letter sent out. And I have yet to have a defendant produce them to me, even though they're almost ex- they're basically expressly required under the new discovery rules. It, it says anything that might change the limits applicable to the claim has to be disclosed. I think it's under 26A, 
uh, two or something. I don't think that changes the limits, though. But, I, I but think I would, it, I would well, probably it does not give it to because, you. It does, nah. it does because it says you've just told your insured you'll pay whatever. No, but it doesn't change the, the calculus, right? If the if the insurance company is liable for it, if the insured is liable for it, it is what it is. Get, you have not you have not modified some, the insuring agreement. I think we need to go get some rulings on this. From we need to push that issue. Should we litigate? Well, last time we tried. Oh no! Oh no! They, they immediately settled. I love when. Yeah, the last time we tried. Last it was time like, we tried, it's like okay. We okay, had the a next policy day, limits demand next out. Day the email was okay. We'll settle. Yeah, Who we have this? policy limits demand they out. Can't tell me, well, it was yeah, a, it was in house in house yeah. counsel for one of the major insurance companies, but um, I was excited for that one. Yeah, we had a policy limits demand out, and then we filed a, a like a statement of discovery issues, asking for it, and it was like two days later that they accepted the policy limits, so it became moot. But um, I think that's an issue that bears um, testing in the courts because I think uh, I don't know the way I read some of those changes. Um, to what the else would that change rules. be referring to? Yeah, that's what I'm is trying. Is that to... it's is that it's it's clear because there's no there's no way an insurance I've never seen an insurance company that was you get sued they get all the information about the claim and you go to them and say hey and I want to buy another million dollars worth of coverage on that claim. Yeah, and they're like they'd say yeah we'll sell it to you it'll cost you a million, million dollars yeah. but I mean so there's no other way that the limits on that they're going to change. Um, so do you have an opinion on what that could be referring to? We we're not trying to gang up on you here, but you you are the only defense attorney in the room, and I'm not. I'm obviously more curious. And we're curious. What uh, and you've shown what what has changed? It changed the amounts that you can get from from the insurance company. You're, asking, likely you're obviously asking off. for for amounts in excess of what you thought you were entitled or what you knew you were entitled to under the insurance policy anyway. Right, but but the so, whole point is is you're you've you've got a no, document that's modified an essential term of the insurance agreement. See, does it modify it though? It says because the insurance in the agreement. Chance. Wait, no, no. The insurance insuring agreement says we will pay damages up to a limit of and it has a number. And then there's another piece of paper that says goes out says guess what we'll pay amounts over. I'm that gonna number. I'm gonna give you the I'm gonna give you the uh, the taken response. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, what is the response that I have a certain? I mean, I typically there's system. been a couple of cases where I've wanted to litigate it, and they've just they've just said their response to my statement of discovery issues. That part of it will be Good there. Luck. Is, there is none. There is no. Good luck. There no, they never say. They never say that. They always say there is no. You know, we don't. I'm not aware of any such letter in our and and we don't, we are not aware of one. And there's no way for me to test that. I mean, I can't go back and say, you know, BS, show me your file. Um, you can make them declare it, I guess. Well, that's what they've done when they when they file a response that says, you know, they've made a representation. And that's why I was wondering if they're as common. We think they're pretty common. I, that they, would be our opinion. I have, I have those, seen it smaller happen smaller dollar value cases, twice. they have to they be have common. To be. Well, if they're fighting a smaller damage. See, I don't deal with... I can't remember the last time I had a a case. I mean, yeah. if I've got a fifty, if I've got a fifty thousand dollar policy and my client has thirty thousand dollars in medicals, and they're, <laughs> saying, and they're saying no. Well, if you caused it, if you, if you rear-ended my client and I was defending my client, no, who you'd rear-ended, where liability is almost assured. Then yeah, forget about it. That's yeah, an easy one. Then and but they're saying there's no peace of mind letter, 
in the final. And they're fighting and I'm like, it. Yeah, and they're fighting it. I'm like, I don't know. You know, I think the peace of mind letters are far less common than you guys think they are. I have only seen it twice. About. I've only seen it twice. Or an exciting thing, depending on whether you want to litigate bad faith cases or not. That would be fun. <laughs> well, and here's the other thing, too, that I don't it, think you guys are understanding. Because it doesn't cut off damages. Because well, okay. that was the original purpose of it, was to cut off these emotional damages that would come with in the bad faith case to say... Yeah, we you know we knew our assets were at risk, and the insurance company wasn't responsive. Well, keep in mind, well, I bet too, they're less common because trials are so few. Few. Now, yeah. here's the other thing. Here's the other thing, guys, and I don't think you're you're calcu- you're putting this into the calculus. Um, our, our, our into your analysis. Our, our no, well, no. But think about it from this perspective. No, that's fine. I mean, when an insurance company and an insurer both considering the ramifications of a policy limits demand, the insured person also has incentive to settle for less because their loss history, depending on how much is paid out, will reflect the amount paid out. And so if the overall amount combined with fees is X, or it's X plus $200,000, one of them is going to result in them being more easily insured in the future than the other. That's more applicable in a corporate context than with like individual claims with and I think and, and maybe that's the know, big sticking point car, with us. because you know if you you're got gonna a repeat have to, player in almost every one of my if, cases if you're gonna have to go get insurance on no but I think it you know, if you're if you're a big developer and you're gonna have to go get de- insurance on a hundred different projects yeah but after a this has to go out and get insurance too I mean <coughs> right, they, they're gonna look at okay well the difference your insurance be, the last time you got in an accident they paid out 200 grand yeah but we're, we're but we're looking at the difference between it could be the difference between uh, twenty million dollars. I mean, I think the theme here versus a few today's theme from Gabe is, "Hey, everybody, just just keep paying, pay out more, and there's no excuse not to." And and my position is, "Hey, everybody, let's be reasonable, and let's be smart about this." <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I just, my position is most policy limits are reasonable. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time, exactly. we say the policy limits demand. I'm just gonna. I've got I'm, a good reason. I am for the bridging the gap here, <laughs> and the bridging the, the gap. Well, I will say that. As always. Was, we we won't send a policy limits demand if we don't have good reason to Bull believe. Bullcrap! <coughs> Sorry, I have a cough. Then it's, then it's likely to... Well, honestly, I think it's a waste of time. If you if you don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah if your client's got $5,000 so, so from our perspective, okay, if stop. you send a policy demand, let's talk That's about that. Let's talk about that issue, though. Well, it raises their antenna mm. big time. What is it? Ra- no, and I think that's probably a good matter. Of course, what is the threshold? Let's let's talk dollars and cents. If you've got special damages, let's just talk special damages. If you have special damages uh, of of a certain percentage of the limits, at what point is policy limits demand? It depends. Uh, a, a, a matter of it course. depends totally on the facts of the case. Like my evaluation of how my client is going to be on the stand. I mean, there's going to be a big range, is what I'm telling you. Okay. Because it'll depend on I think a lot Paul of these puts soft. It at like, a multiplier of two to five. Yeah, but it, I mean, it'll depend a lot on you know, the emotional impact of the claim versus. I mean, you and I have both know Patrick has had cases where they had three thousand dollars or four thousand dollars in economic damages, waived them all, made a limits demand, and then went to trial and got, you know, a twelve million dollar verdict because the emotional damages were so high because the facts of the case were so heinous. And so it's, it's really difficult to do that. The other thing, though, to keep in mind when evaluating how careful, and it, again, this depends on how sophisticated your plaintiff's attorneys are, but on the more sophisticated end, plaintiff's attorneys are starting to realize that every single major insurance company, which the vast, the, the idea of the, 
you're dealing with a small local insurance company, unless you're in, unless you're in a really narrow area, is is kind of long gone because almost all of them are owned by one of, say, ten or twenty major insurance companies. All of them now use some sort of software that tracks everything about every single claim, including plaintiff's counsel, how plaintiff's counsel responded, what sort of demand they make, were they willing to go to trial, did they, you know, did they, do they have a history of being willing to go to trial, do they try cases when they don't get what they want, like are they willing to walk out of mediations, like all of this evaluation of, uh, and, and every time we sue one of their insureds, that pops up in the system. And so the, the seminars that are going on now, you know, it used to be all the seminars five years ago were, you know, about the reptile or whatever. Seminars that are going on now, a lot of them are about how to write demands and how to ensure that the information you give the insur- to defense counsel that gets forwarded on to the insurance company or to give directly to the adjuster before defense counsel is involved reflects, it is done in a way to both to maximize that claim and to maximize evaluations in the future. And so we have a, a strong incentive to not make demands unless we really think, and now there's some attorneys out there who will still make demands for $3 million and then walk out of the mediation three hours late, you know, started out with a demand with $3 million and walk out of the mediation you know, very happy to have accepted a $50,000 payout on the exact same claim. Okay, there are, there are some old school guys that are still like that, but you're younger, more computer savvy, um, and, and savvy about the industry. Plaintiff's attorneys are looking at it like, okay, I gotta, you know, on the one hand, you know, I've always gotta communicate with my clients, client makes a settlement decision, but once a client has settled in, done it, I can't play games where I like, throw out a number and then that's my suggestion that you should consider that and and say we're going to pull that number and you may never ever see it again i can't do the thing that people used to do all the time where they throw that number out say well you may never see this again but really at mediation that's kind of what i'm expecting my like i got to be serious like if i throw out a number i've got to have a reason for it and i've got to be willing to Back up, whether that's walking out on mediation, whether that's saying, "Well, let's go get a trial date and let's go roll the dice on this one." No, you're saying you're 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 putting that on a mediation or before. Um, at any stage of the case, I've got to when I make thing do things like make demands. When I when I I mean even down to in some with some insurance companies, from what I've been told, it'll go as deep as you know, like when he demands documents, does he follow up with a you know, and, and press the court for it. Like, does he do what he says he's going to do or does he like to bluff a lot? And, you know, you get the reputation through these computer systems and through word of mouth that, no, when this attorney says, I mean, you and I both know plaintiff's attorneys in this town that even before this had the reputation that when they said X, they meant X. And... If you weren't willing to pay X, they were willing to try the case. And those are the guys, a lot of them, that occupy the you know, upper echelons of plaintiff's practice. Um, and uh, 
you know, I, I've recently encountered situations where we walked into mediation a year and a half, you know, we'd made an offer of 150000 a year and a half before, and it had come straight from my clients. They had decided it, and they had basically dictated the email, and it had said, look, we're going to make this offer now, but if we, you don't, if you reject it, it's not coming back on the table, period. And they had just ignored it, and then they'd offered us $100,000, oh, you know, for four or five months ago, and then suggested we mediate when we ignored theirs. They still assumed that we would be willing to take in somewhere something somewhere between one hundred and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and we wound up walking out of the mediation because it's like, no, we were, you know, and I'm consulting with my clients the entire time, saying, hey, are you guys still feeling this way? Are you still, you know, serious? And we're making giving them our analysis. But, um, you know, essentially, it's like, look, no, you have got to, the last message we sent over to the other side through the mediator was, you you tell them that when, you know, when Gabe calls you up and says, you know, this is the offer, you may not see it again if you don't take it. That is what he means. And that go, that'll go into the report, and that dramatically increases credibility. So that, I, I think the, the idea of the frivolous settlement demand is something that you still see, um, or the ridiculously high settlement demand. But because of insurance company practices in tracking uh, plaintiff's counsel, increasingly that's going away. Well, should, I, yeah, our perspective is just a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and it is also a waste well, of time. Well, the other thing, and, too, on it is your client, it helps us, too. The clients become a lot more involved in that process and the client expectations like like we have to have a sit down with the client say look if we're going to offer this and we say that it will not come back you got to be on board with us you got to let us do that because if then if you and then if you cave later on you're gonna get way less money we're gonna get it's gonna work bad for everybody so we got to get the clients on board with that strategy too a lot of times yeah, and so and and it helps also with client expectations. I mean, you know, there's one attorney. I'm, I won't say his name, but there's one attorney in particular I'm thinking about that will. There's two actually I can think of right now that almost always start negotiations at you know twenty times or a hundred times what they actually want out of the case because they assume um, they assume that it will. Um, then it will come down, and that is increasingly just not the smart play. I mean, it's it drags things out. It makes the clients believe their cases because client every client wants to believe that their case is worth two or three million dollars. And if instead you're saying, "I think this is what your case is worth, and I think this is what we should demand right now to settle it," and it's an accurate assessment. And I think if they won't take it, you should walk away because you're going to incur extra costs by going up forward and extra risk and it makes the case worth more, except from a settlement perspective, then, you know, the only time it changes is if, you know, we go through a bunch of depositions after that offer and the depots don't go well for us. But in this particular case I was telling you about, every single depot went exactly well. I mean, these guys broke the law in doing what they were doing and put... It created a huge risk. Were cited, and then the head of their company in deposition said, "You know, yeah, if I had it to do over again, I'd do exactly the same thing. I don't see anything wrong with what we did." 
And so we're walking in there like, all right, um, you know, I, I don't know where it's going to wind up, but it's certainly not going to be. When people come in trench, you know. Yeah, it's certainly not going to be down where they were before because, yeah. you know, that would be silly. And sure enough, the mediator comes back and says, uh, they think you're here to negotiate between their last offer and your last offer. And I'm like, did they not read the offer? You're one of those guys. Bless your heart. But, I mean, I think in, increasingly if I'm you want... I'm serious. If you don't take my offer, I'm going up. If you want the insurance company to take you, insurance company to take your offers seriously and not dilly-dally around with this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you almost got to be that way. Yeah. And in order to, to get it consistently, you've got to do it consistently enough that you get the reputation. But, um, you know, I think that is is kind of a basic run through of what constitutes a, um, you know, the, the policy limits, demand, the risks involved. Um, any of you gentlemen have anything else to add? No, I think we've covered most of the considerations. I mean, at the end of the day, when I de deny it too, if I get some jack wagon like you, after I've done a substantial evaluation, getting to a mediation and then going past policy limits, I'm like, no, I've done my evaluation. I mean, it's not going to change where I start. No, and, and that's the thing is, I, I'm always very clear. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, hey, when I send you the, the demand, like, hey, you're not going to see this again. And if you call me up, I'm going to say, well, I'll talk to my client. But well, you're obligated to convey any money that's offered. Oh, well. we will convey it. Yeah, sure you will, Gabe. Yeah, no, we convey all of them. But you know, the clients, the there's, clients are already just set. A healthy amount of cynicism on both sides. And <laughs> and, and the clients it truly is. And just like yeah. just like, like we never think anyone talks to their we talk about insureds and then sure we, they do. We talk about managing expectations. And that's what, that's what, if you've managed so expectations. You ever, okay, well, last thing I'll ask. Okay. Do you ever not agree to a mediation as, after that? or, do you, or I you never, to... I'll never not agree to a mediation okay. because generally I, because I can't if tell nothing you. else, I, oh, I, I learn, I learn enough about the other side and where they're at in the mediation that even if the numbers go, it's don't go anywhere, act, it's worth activity. it. Well, and I was going to say, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been in similar situations where the other side is super entrenched. And I'm, I'm debating, you know, whether or not, well, not debating, but questioning whether or not they're really conveying my offer over. And I feel like nine times out of ten, I get them to agree to mediation and have a mediator shuttle diplomacy the thing and actually convey my offer to them. We get it done for the range where I thought it would settle. I mean, every single time. So, yeah, you, you raise a good point. I haven't dealt with you on any of these cases, but I'll tell you what, none of those attorneys that are sending me demands ever stick to it. And, and I think that's oh. largely because uh, I don't feel like they're conveying all the risks properly to their well, clients. We'll have, we'll have those conversations. And maybe the same thing happens on the, the, the our side. We, we'll have those conversations yeah. with the clients because we don't ever want the client. Well, I, mean, I think it's two different worlds. Well, too. yeah, and, and the other really. thing to keep in mind is, I mean, you know my practice. My practice depends almost, we don't really advertise much more than the website or this, you know, the podcast. My practice depends almost entirely on referrals from other attorneys. No, you do good work. And from, yeah. and from, and from clients. And so... That is, of course, until he's uh, opposite from me, at which point he will get destroyed. At some point, yeah. You know, well, I guess you can't win them all, but... Um, <coughs>
I'm going to humor my, my colleague here. <laughs> Next, um, uh, it's complex. Well, thank you all very much for tuning in to the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Um, we always appreciate our listeners, and uh, make sure and sign up and, and subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, and uh, give us a rating. We'd love to hear, or some comments, we'd love to hear what you think. Thank you very much.